On this episode of 20 Minute Takes, we're joined by scholar activist Ron Sider. Ron is the author of Rich Christians in Age of Hunger. Christianity Today named Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger one of its top 100 books of the century. He's also had a front row seat as the church has tried to engage with some of the greatest injustice issues over the last 50 years. Giving that long historical perspective, he gives some insights that might help inform us about how we can respond today. Ron Sider, thank you so much for coming to join us here on 20 Minute Takes. Gladly. Um, Ron is uh, a professor emeritus at the Palmer Seminary at Eastern University. He's the author of Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And the fact that's most dear to us at Christians for Social Action, Ron is the founder and the emeritus president of Evangelicals for Social Action, which is now called Christians for Social Action. What would you say is thing that people most um, comment or know you from? Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger is the the book I'm identified with. I think it's the best thing I did. Um, almost every trip I do, uh, somebody comes up and says, uh, thank you very much. It um, affected my life. Yeah, I think your book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, was how I got introduced to you. I remember picking it up in college and uh, it just really expanded my worldview. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what it is that prompted you to write Rich Christians in Age of Hunger? Well, it actually started in uh, 1967. I was filling in preaching for a little Baptist church in Connecticut that was merging with another. And um, one Saturday, I decided to preach uh, uh, the next day on world hunger. I had a little section on the problem, a little section on the biblical material. And then um, I always thought a sermon ought to have some uh, something that you can do. And the idea of a graduated tithe came, came to me uh, a few years later. And um, then I said, hey, I'd like to do a book, a little book called The Graduated Tithe. We thought it would be three chapters, 80 to 120 pages. But when I wrote it, it grew like Topsy. And um, the biblical section became uh, four chapters. I think that's the best part uh, from the beginning, uh, still is. And um, it's the only time, I think, in my life when a publisher just accepted my title without <laughs> proposing something else. <laughs> can you uh, explain to us, for those who aren't familiar with The Graduated Tithe, can you just explain that to us um, so we could understand? Oh, yes. The idea was that um, um, give... Um, 10% uh, a tithe uh, on uh, a reasonable amount. And then for every $1,000 uh, that your income is above that amount, uh, give an increasing amount. Give 15% on the next 1000 and 20% on the next 1000 and so on. Uh, that's, that's the basic uh, idea. Uh, in my own lifetime, uh, Arbutus and I have had to, uh, you know, modify the basic amount as we had children and they they went to college and, and they're expensive so aren't they but, uh, yeah <laughs> we've tried to uh, practice that it sounds like um it really puts on ha on its head most folks think 
when I'm making more money, therefore I'm spending more money. But it sounds like the idea that you're putting forward is that as you're making more money, it actually is enabling you to be even more generous. Is that is that a good summary of that? That's exactly right. Uh, and I think that's, uh, I mean, we've always been, uh, we've never lived in poverty. Uh, you know, we've um, had a modest middle-class lifestyle, uh, but we've been able to give away a, a lot of money and we're grateful for that. You mentioned the scriptural section of the book. Can you unpack for us a couple of the key themes and biblical principles that informed rich Christians in an age of hunger? Well, I think the uh, most basic one is uh, uh, chapter three, which talks about God being on the side of the poor. Um, It doesn't mean that uh, God doesn't like the rich, but in very special ways, God has a special concern for the poor and calls his followers, his people, to have a special concern for the poor. Mm, and that's mm-hmm. probably um, the, the most important um, thing that I say. And what do you think? You know, I, we, we have a lot of uh, folks and a lot of listeners who care a lot about poverty, about a growing gap between the rich and the poor. What do you think is the role of Christians? And what are one or two things that you think folks can do that might have the most impact. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, let me say that when I wrote the book in 76, it came out in early 77. um, I'm not sure how hopeful I was, but in in the last 40 years, we have made enormous progress. (laughs) <laughs> on reducing poverty in the world. Uh, uh-huh. China alone has lifted 600 million, 800 million um, people out of poverty. It's true um, in a lot of countries in Asia. Uh, it's not nearly as fast in Africa, but it's some progress. Now, we still have... Um, Uh, a large number of people in poverty that's unacceptable and that poverty is grinding. And Mm -hmm. when you uh, have a crisis like COVID, you know, uh, 200 uh, million, 200 million, whatever, you know, more people fall into poverty. So there's still a big problem, but it's, it's not as, as large as a percentage of people in the world as it was, when I first wrote the book, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that, but it doesn't mean for a moment that um, we shouldn't be working at at poverty, um, both mm-hmm. in this country and abroad. No, that's great. I, I think you're right. I think there's something about the pandemic that really brought into the light or the clarity the real disparities that exist in the world, and we just saw that play out. It maybe for some folks. Maybe for some folks, it was kind of conceptual, but I think the pandemic really sort of put concretes in a face on uh, the impact of these in- income inequalities and access to healthcare, these sort of things. Well, we saw it most blatantly um, in who got vaccination. Um, right. You know, uh, majority of people in the wealthy countries uh, got it, and only a small percentage of people, especially in Africa, um, got the vaccination, you know, that's wrong. Um, The U.S. could have decided to 
uh, help make uh, vaccinations available much more quickly and widespread uh, in widespread ways. Uh, it didn't. That's uh, that's just one uh, current example. Yeah, in terms of no, the I think US, it's- you know, um, it's it's very clear that in, over the last forty years. Um, the bottom third to one half of the population uh, has uh, not gained anything, while the richest twenty wow. percent, wow. and especially the richest one percent, have gotten uh-huh. uh, enormously wealthy. And we know what to do to change that. Um, yeah, we need to change the tax structure, but uh, that's very hard to do. Yeah, no, that's really true. How do you respond to people who say? Well, Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. Yeah, he probably was referring to uh, uh, Deuteronomy 15, uh, which um, uh, says that if my people obey me, and and that text talks about uh, uh, forgiving uh, 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 debts, uh, releasing Hebrew slaves every seven years, uh, so they can uh, hmm. go back. Mm-hmm. And the text says, if you obey me, uh, there will be no poverty among you. But then mm-hmm. it goes on just a few verses later uh, to say, um, um, uh, you know, there will always be poor among you. And I think it's mm-hmm. clearly saying, you know, I know you're sinners. I know you're not going to do what I tell you in order to uh, uh, not have poverty among my people. Uh, and mm-hmm. so when there is poverty, be generous, um, mm-hmm. care for the poor. Uh, Jesus wasn't for a moment saying, don't care for the poor. Uh, I think he was alluding to that text, which clearly means that we're supposed to uh, be generous uh, when there when there is poverty. You know, I know a lot of folks um, these days in the United States and in other areas um, with school debt, with living paycheck to paycheck, they might not feel like they are, you know, quote unquote, rich Christians. Is there an invitation uh, to folks like that? You mean the, the people in the U.S. that who are living paycheck to paycheck? Yeah, or I think a lot of young people, you know, they're navigating a lot of like school debt or other financial obligations. Uh, the job market's a little tricky right now. Folks who might not feel like they identify as rich Christians. But is is there an invitation, do you think, for folks uh, in that kind of a situation? Yeah, well, I think one has to make uh, some distinctions. Um, mm-hmm. Almost everyone in the United States is relatively well off mm-hmm. compared to uh, the half a billion or more people in the world who live on the dollar seventy-five a day? Um, yes, yeah. Uh, but to live in this country at uh, and earn a minimum wage means you're quite poor and you have mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. lot of problems. Uh, and so I want to say uh, two things. One is for the significant number of people in the U.S. who are at the poverty line or just a little bit above it, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they should uh, give something uh, uh, to um, 
uh, overcome poverty, but they don't have the same obligation as people who are making $80,000 a year or $150,000 a year, not mm-hmm. to mention the people making millions and billions. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's where the idea of a graduated tithe comes in. Um, mm-hmm. I think that uh, uh, everyone should give a modest amount uh, to uh, the work of the kingdom, but uh, the more income we have, uh, the more the higher percentage of that income we ought to be giving. Mm. So that gift of and that invitation for generosity is for everyone, and yes. maybe how that looks. Yes, in each that's fantastic. That's great. Well, I know I personally have really appreciated, and I would say that rich Christians in an age of hunger was really formative. I know that as I travel around in the cities that I am in. I often have people who come up and and tell me about the impact that that book has had on their life. So I think that has been so foundational, especially for the Christian justice movement. So thank you so much for writing that. I think there's a couple of other parts of your story that I find so fascinating and and so informative for us today. Um, In specific, um, can you tell us about what your work in South Africa uh, during uh, the anti-apartheid movement do you think there's any insights for us today as the United States is going through sort of a racial reckoning? Um, is there anything that you think um, kind of emerged from that time and the fight um, against apartheid that might be sort of helpful wisdom, either similarities that you see or takeaways that were true then that you think might be relevant or uh, poignant for this moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure that I have a really clear answer. I was there first in 79 to speak to a huge gathering, uh, South Africa Christian Leadership Assembly. They brought together about 5,000 people from all the different churches and places trying to deal with apartheid. Yeah. Uh, They didn't really do much. (laughs) Um, In the... uh, middle 80s, we got in touch with a group of young black uh, evangelicals that uh, were very much uh, working to end apartheid. Um, And Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Moss um, Untla, who has been the head of the uh, Evangelical Fellowship of South Africa for about 25 years now, was one of the leaders, and we had him come to the U.S. and uh, travel to about 20 or more Christian colleges uh, in about uh, a month and talk about um, supporting um, um, economic restrictions on South Africa. That was at a time oh, wow. Harry Falwell was urging Americans to buy Krugerrands to uh, oh, wow. support the government to defend against communism. Yeah, I think the fact that um, when Mandela was released uh, and became president, he um, chartered a course of change, but um, uh, not um, a kind of um, getting evil, uh, getting evil uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and punishing, uh-huh. but saying, let's find a society uh, that can move forward. And um, uh-huh. uh, and the uh, marvelous work by uh, 
uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu. Desmond, yeah, uh, and um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think that's a model for um, working at uh, terrible um, societal injustice. Maybe uh-huh. we could even use that now in terms of Black Lives Matter and how we're dealing with uh, the racial question. Um, you know, I just get angry when uh, white evangelicals um, um, attract critical race theory uh, yeah. and <laughs> refuse to deal with an awful history. Um, but we need to deal with that history in a way that moves us toward reconciliation. And uh, right. I think that um, uh, an acknowledgement of what was wrong and what we did that was wrong, along with, uh, okay, we will forgive and move forward, that maybe there's a clue there for how we could move forward um, in this country, um, affirming Black Lives Matter, acknowledging that there has been a terrible racist history, uh, acknowledging that there's also been uh, uh, some really good efforts, and people are are wanting, uh, at least a lot of people, are wanting to um, change. Maybe that's a clue. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That, that importance of uh, having some boldness to come and come around truth and history and a common understanding of history, and then uh, the repair of relationships that comes. I think that's I think that's powerful. You know, one of the things that I um, found uh, you're a you're a Mennonite and sort of well known um, for uh, your pursuit of peace and shalom. And uh, one of uh, the things that to me was so interesting is I believe there was a quote that uh, or a challenge that you threw down. I'm going to paraphrase it, but I would love for you to kind of either correct me and. And tell us a little bit about um, this moment. But um, you gave a charge to the peacemakers, encouraging them to pursue peace with the same strength and vigor that those who pursue violence uh, pursue violence. Uh, the Mennonite uh, Mennonites have every uh, seven, I think, years a Mennonite World Congress that thousands of people come to from around the world. And in 1984, I was asked to give the peace lecture. And in that lecture, um, I called us to move beyond a kind of non-resistance to evil to a very activist confrontation with injustice. But uh, I love that nonviolent. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, that address. Um, led after a couple years of very major uh, analysis and study by the top leadership of the Mennonite churches in Canada and the U.S. to saying, yes, that activist nonviolence is in keeping with our Mennonite tradition and Christian peacemaker teams then was formed uh, uh, as a result. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, Ron Sider, you are a scholar and an activist and one of the folks who really stirs our imagination to dream 
bigger dreams and new dreams about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully in this day and in this time. So thank you so much for your example. And uh, thanks so much for spending time with us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you, Nikki. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. Our music was created by Andre Henry, and our show is produced by David Delion. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and if you want to find out more about our work, visit the website at ChristiansforSocialAction.org.